0: Welcome to the Thrive Theology podcast, where we equip you to live thoughtfully as a Christian by discussing and teaching various theological topics. We believe every Christian is called to be a theologian because theology isn't just knowing about God, but knowing his heart. Today, we are doing a Life, Legacy, and Lessons episode on Jonathan Edwards. Um, You've probably heard this name. Um, Jonathan Edwards was a puritan preacher in this mid 1700s so a little earlier than i think most people are familiar with in american history in fact america wasn't america when he was alive america was the 13 colonies of great britain Um, If you're familiar with him, you've probably heard his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and you probably have some preconceived notions about what type of person he was and what type of preacher he was, and we hope with this episode to round out some of that information and give you an idea of who Jonathan Edwards was as a man and what he did with his life.
1: We're going to start off by talking about Jonathan Edwards' early life. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703 in Connecticut to Timothy Edwards and Esther Stoddard. He was the fifth child of 11 and the only son. So that's a lot of sisters. (laughs) His father, Timothy, was a minister and earned a living tutoring boys headed for college. Esther, his mother, was an unusually independent and intellectual woman for the time, and the Edwards house was always filled with learning and discussion. Esther's father was Reverend Solomon Stoddard, so she also had a preacher for her father, so they had lots of preachers in their family. Jonathan was prepared for college by his older sisters and his father. He entered Yale at 13 years old and graduated at 17 as class valedictorian. During his university years, Jonathan was introduced to the ideas of John Locke, Isaac Newton, and other Enlightenment thinkers. He kept notebooks to collect his thoughts on natural science, philosophy, the mind, and the scriptures. Jonathan had struggled with the sureness of his own salvation and was not satisfied until reckoning with the Calvinist doctrine of double predestination in his last year at college. So that was really what helped him gain a sureness of his salvation. During his growing up years, Jonathan was captivated by nature and science, allowing this field of study to draw him closer to God.
0: I want to give you some quick historical context here. Like I said before, the 1700s is not a time period most of us are familiar with. So if you'll remember in our last episode, we talked about North America being a place of opportunity for people to begin establishing their faith communities. Um, this, I, The ideas of the Puritans still had quite a bit of influence in New England, um, but politically and economically, the area was still tied to Great Britain and Europe. This made the Americas primed for the testing of new ideas away from the direct influence of the churches of Europe and the established educational institutions. The 13 colonies began to establish their own schools of thought, education, and ideals for life, and they actually had the freedom to try them. Immigration had steadily increased the numbers of Europeans, Um, the slave trade had increased the enslaved African population, and the Native American population had decreased significantly due to disease and European immigration. Now, the Great Enlightenment began around 1715 and was marked by scientific discovery, philosophy, and the discussion of new ideas. Primarily related to our episode today is the new reliance on the five senses as a means of learning knowledge. This was a challenge for the believers and Christians because up to this point, the church had held significant control over scientific research and discovery. Um, A good example would be the geocentric model of the solar system, meaning that the earth is at the center of the solar system versus the heliocentric um, model, believing that the sun was the center. Of course, now we know that the sun is the center of our universe, but back then the established church... um, would say, no, you can't. And it was believed to be an affront to God and his design to say otherwise. In fact, in um, the, the centuries before that, scientists were excommunicated for publishing their discoveries that seemed to be counter to the current religious beliefs. So this is now changing in the Enlightenment when discovery and research and publishing of these discoveries in science and philosophy was actually permitted for the wider people. You also remember that we talked about the printing press. Now these ideas have a way of getting to the normal person. Many prominent Christians were wary of being pulled away from God by these new scientific ideas and moving into deism. Of course, deism is the belief that God created the world, but that he no longer has a puts a hand to it. So the, the clockmaker theory, he set it up and then just let it run on its own. In fact, later, many of America's founding fathers would hold more deistic views rather than the traditional Christian views. Um, Jonathan didn't actually have this concern, and he studied the natural world freely. He believed that he, in doing so, he would be able to glorify God for the design that he found. in looking at things like a spider and how it seems to fly um, or balloon up. He like wrote his own little scientific discovery thing when he was still at home before going to Yale, of just glorying in how God had designed that, and he allowed it to really draw him closer. And he would continue this study into natural science for the rest of his life.
1: Upon his graduation from Yale, Jonathan did some supply pastor work in different congregations while also continuing to pursue his own personal study. It was during this time that he began his practice of getting up at 4 a.m. and studying for 13 hours a day. On February 15, 1727, Jonathan was ordained as a minister and given the position of pastor-scholar under his grandfather, Reverend Solomon Stoddard in Northampton. That was his mother's father. So at this point, the role of a pastor scholar was to study, learn, and write. It is essentially a paid researcher and scholar for the benefit of the congregation. And this of course was right up Jonathan's alley. He married Sarah Pierpont the same year. She was 17 at the time and they had known each other for a while. Sarah's pious faith was a great encouragement to Jonathan and she was a joyful, practical, talented wife and mother. Sarah's father was a founder of Yale College and her family was prominent in the New England society that they were both in. She and Jonathan would eventually have 11 children, just like he the home he grew up in, and 2 years later Jonathan's grandfather actually passed away leaving him the pastorate position. These early years of Um, Jonathan and Sarah's marriage would be filled with personal study and research laying the foundation for Jonathan's later sermons and writings.
0: At this point, Jonathan began preaching with regularity. The Great Awakening was moving through New England in the early 1730s and 1740s. Up to that time, the churches had been spending time debating the rules for church membership and baptism. There was a sense of quiet apathy and more of a focus on the minute details of theology and the Christian life rather than full-blown living for God as we would think of it now. At this point, there was also um, a major controversy in the church because they were trying to figure out what denoted a person as being a Christian and therefore eligible for church membership. Of course, everybody grew up going to church, but what was the point of actual conversion? There is the idea that unless you could point to a specific moment when you were converted, and this moment or this testimony would usually include um, emotional feelings that you had. Um, Unless you could point to something like that specifically, you weren't actually considered a Christian. And so in the church, they would say, well, if you don't have this point you can't actually be a member. Well, if you're not a member, you can't baptize your children. And at this point, the ch- church is very widely held to infant baptism in covenant theology. And so there was kind of a compromise that came up. It's called the halfway covenant. And so people who could had, a, had made a profession of faith and could confirm like something like the Apostles' Creed but they didn't have a specific conversion story, they were considered um, halfway covenant members. And so while they couldn't participate in communion, they could have their children baptized. And that was a really big deal, of course, because of covenant theology, which we've talked about before. And in fact, at this point, because of the rules for becoming the member of a church were so stringent, only about 10% of people who attended a church were actually members. Most, other, most of the other people were you know, waiting for that big conversion moment to say, yes, I now am a full-blown Christian who's sure of my salvation. Um, they were either waiting for that or they were under the halfway covenant. Um, and it made for a rather interesting religious experience for people who were preaching and attending church at that time. The Great Awakening called people to true commitment to God, focusing on including a person's emotions in their conversion experience. This differed from the rather detached way of looking at true conversions in the years before. Jonathan began preaching his sermons with a focus on the Awakening's values and ideals, stoking the emotional fervor of his congregants. Many young people in New England began attending church, and this revival actually affected businesses' ability to function because it disrupted society so much with so many people being converted. Eventually, his church was actually seeing 30 conversions a week. As people began having conversion experiences in response to the revival, Jonathan was able to study and the process of conversion more closely, using that information to influence his sermons. He also wrote of these conversions in his book, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. Jonathan's public ministry at that time focused on justification by faith alone, studying God's glory in the salvation or damnation of humans, and pointing out his sovereignty in both predestined circumstances. This would be the double predestination view that is held in many Calvinist or Reformed circles where God has predestined certain people for salvation and certain people for damnation, and that it's his sovereign will that determines that. His most impactful and popular sermons were put into the book Justification by Faith. At the height of this revival in the summer of 1735, people were so affected by the teachings of hell that instead of converting and being saved, some of them actually became convinced of their own damnation, and two people took their own lives in their distress at this knowledge. One of these people was Jonathan's own uncle, Joseph Holly II. These terrible events ended the revival in the area, specifically in his church, and they were able to... Become a little bit more ordered in their worship. Soon, Jonathan's reputation
1: spread to England and Scotland, and his book made it into the hands of George Whitfield, who was the great British preacher and revivalist. Jonathan met with Whitfield and helped to organize his speaking tour throughout New England between 1739 and 1740. In 1741, Jonathan delivered his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which walks the audience through the gospel, pointing them to the need of God's grace and true personal conversion. It has been hailed as a fire and brimstone sermon common to the awakening, but in reality, it was actually originally delivered in a rather quiet, earnest voice as Jonathan was not a loud preacher. He wasn't one of these guys who yelled and screamed and stomped his feet. So the Great Awakening was criticized for the bodily aspects that were involved, such as swooning, crying, convulsions, etc., when somebody experienced conversion. And this didn't happen with everybody, but it happened with enough that it received some negative attention. Jonathan wrote on some of these most controversial elements in his book, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Jonathan emphasized a true conversion experience being necessary to church membership in this work. The halfway covenant that Bethany mentioned earlier was a practice that was established to allow people who had been baptized, but did not have a moment of conversion story to be permitted to baptize their children. Jonathan's grandfather thought that those who were under the halfway covenant could take communion since they could attest to the apostles creed and make a profession of faith. Jonathan disagreed with this. And he taught that only those who have true conversion testimonies could be full members of the church. Jonathan continued to study, preach, and publish his beliefs on conversion and church membership, putting these ideas into several published works. These included a work called Some Thoughts Concerning the Present Revival of Religion in New England. That was published in 1742. In 1746, he published Treatise on Religious Affections. In 1749, he published Qualifications for Full Communion. In the late 1740s, these ideas came into conflict with the congregation, and in 1750, Jonathan was actually ousted from the pastorate by a vote of 200 to 23. Jonathan later wrote of his dislike of the Congregationalist model, and he also wrote of his admiration
0: for the Presbyterian model of church government. Jonathan was now in high demand, and a few congregations offered him their pulpits. One was in Scotland, and one was in Virginia. But he decided to move to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, preaching at the church there and serving as a missionary to the Native Americans. He took on the plight of the Native Americans, writing and condemning the wealthy Europeans who were profiting off of the Native Americans' work and land. He would preach through an interpreter to the, please forgive me for this pronunciation, how satanic people. While there, he wrote Freedom of the Will, which was a piece on God's divine sovereignty in 1754. Continuing his lifelong study of natural sciences, Jonathan wrote on the belief that God's providential power was the force holding every atom in place. He supported this with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, which says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jonathan was asked to be the first president of the College of New Jersey, which is now known as Princeton, in 1758. He would assist in the teaching of students, giving theology essay assignments along with the duties of president. Jonathan was a lifelong supporter of inoculation and decided to get the smallpox inoculation in order to encourage others to do so. However, he was never in the best of health, and as a result of the inoculation, he died on March 22, 1758.
1: take some time now to talk about the legacy that jonathan edwards left Um, as we mentioned briefly earlier sinners in the hands of an angry god is jonathan's most well-known sermon and as we mentioned earlier that it's reported that he actually delivered this sermon in a quiet emotionless manner it was a call to experience true conversion and salvation not relying on church membership to secure your eternal peace Jonathan's writings and sermons have continued to influence generations of believers in the years since he lived, particularly in the Reformed church traditions. Jonathan's family line boasts some really prominent descendants, including one U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. And because of this um, really robust family line, eugenicists have actually used Jonathan's descendants as proof positive for eugenics, since many of his offspring were prominent members of society. According to James Marsden, Jonathan's biographer, the Edwards family produced scores of clergymen, 13 presidents of higher learning, 65 professors, and many other persons of notable achievements.
0: One of the reasons that people would point to the eugenics movement here is that Um, Jonathan was very devoted to his family. In fact, every evening he would spend an hour with his children, helping them with their school lessons, hearing about their day, conversing with them. And he would personally pray a blessing over each of them individually every day. He was really involved and connected to his family. In fact, when he traveled to preach, he would always take one of his children along Um, he and his wife, Sarah, were very close. They would take evening horseback rides together, read the Bible together, and people would look at this and say, well, if you are wise and loving and set your children up, right, clearly this is going to impact them, um, through the generations. Um, Jonathan is actually compared to another man, um, And his descendants, and this man was an atheist and, you know, some other not very good things. And so it's been used as proof of eugenics. Um, And it it is true that Jonathan's descendants have had a rather disproportionate effect on American um, religious society, as well as just the population in general. Um, And I don't know if you can specifically take this um, as being because of his and his wife, Sarah's, their... way of living, but it, it sure is an interesting thing to think about of people who are parents and have children and how you're raising your children. We're now going to move into some of the lessons that we learn from Jonathan. Clearly there is his numerous um, sermons and books and writings and um, his public discourse that has influenced a lot of the Reformed theology like we spoke about before, but there's one very glaring blind spot in Jonathan Edwards's life. It starts with his growing up years. His parents owned at least one household enslaved person who was a black man named Ansars. Throughout their life, Jonathan and Sarah would always own at least one um, black enslaved person, but over the years they owned several at, at different times, including children and adults. Um, one such person was a young teenager named Venus who had been captured in Africa and transported through the Atlantic slave trade. They also enslaved a boy named Titus and a woman named Leah. In a 1741 pamphlet, Edwards would defend, um, defended enslaving people who were debtors, war captives, or who were born enslaved in North America. Um, but at that point in his life, he would reject the transatlantic slave trade. From our current modern perspective, this seems like a no-brainer. You don't enslave people, especially based on their skin color. And there were many people at that time who were strong abolitionists. So we can't look back and say, well, that was just the culture. Because there were people, even at that point, who were speaking out strongly against it, who would even give their lives to, to rescue these people from enslavement. Um, And yet when we read Jonathan's works, we see that he he had a strong and deep relationship with God and he was able to preach and lead and spent a lot of time communing with the Lord and, and learning and preaching and teaching. So how could he have such a blind spot in the fact that he would actively enslave people throughout his entire life? At this point, I don't have a, a clear answer for you. I've spent time researching black chattel slavery in North America. I spent a summer as a tour guide at a local um, historic site. That was the largest black settlement in North America where I learned quite a bit of that um, history specific to our area of North America. and like it, it feels like there's no way he should be able to enslave people. When he was this close to God, and I'm not going to tie this up with a bow because I don't think you can. Um, similar to when we've talked about other people in Christian history, you have to look at the good and the bad. Obviously, no person is perfect. Now we don't want to give him a pass and saying, "Oh, nobody's perfect." He can have his little vice. Like that's that's wrong too. Um, I think it means that you read his works and you understand his life with this in mind, with this in view. Um, and the knowledge that he will have to answer for that. Just like each one of us will stand before God and answer for our actions and decisions, um, he will have to do the same. And I think it, we should be aware that even now, when there are, there's such controversy over racism and systematic racism, and that still exists in our culture and community, there are people who have different views. And we look back at his time and say they were wrong. And I think we can look at people in our time and say they're wrong too. We're going to conclude this episode with a
1: quote from Jonathan. Everything that was contrived and done for the redemption and salvation of believers and every benefit they have by it is holy and perfectly from the free, eternal, distinguishing love and infinite grace of Christ towards them. So with that, we're going to wrap up um, our episode today on Jonathan Edwards. We hope that you enjoyed it, that you learned something. And um, like always, feel free to check our archives. We've done other episodes similar to this one where we explore the life and legacy of a prominent Christian figure in history. So definitely you can go back and check those out. And as usual, we'll leave some recommended resources for you in the show notes as well. If you would like to learn more about Jonathan Edwards. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at ThriveTheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.